You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Um, there's a, a movie that's done in black and white. If you've never seen black and white, it's pretty amazing stuff. So it's a movie done in black and white, and there's this guy in the movie, his name is George. And George is a president of a financial institution called a savings and loan. If you don't know what a savings loan is, you were born in the 80s or thereafter. Um, savings and loan were financial institutions that existed one time in the history of America. But this guy, George Banks, becomes the president of this bank, doesn't really want to be the president of this bank, and then one day, this really horrible thing happens. Horrible thing happens. And it wrecks his life. And he just moves into this darkness and despair. Um, and he gets to such a point where he goes to the, the bridge from the town. And in this town, there's actually water that goes under that bridge. And he, it's a cold day, and he's thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm done. And a weird thing happens. Someone jumps in before him. And one of the things about George is he's just internally a good person. And so now he doesn't jump in to kill himself and just join this guy. He jumps in to save this guy, and he saves this guy. And as he saves this guy, and they're kind of drying out and warming up, he's beginning to converse with this fellow. And the fellow introduces himself as Clarence, and Clarence turns out to be an angel. At least that's what he tells George, and George thinks he's nuts. And um, at one point, George just expresses the frustration of his own life, and he says, I just, I wish I had never existed. And the angel hears that and decides to give him that. Decides to give him that. Decides to take his, his um, participation in history and time and space. And in that town, any contribution he's made is gone. And George goes back in this town. And the town is not the town that he had left to jump off the bridge from. The town is completely different. It's frank, frankly just a very dark place. And this experience for him is just very discomforting for him. Just disorienting. What? What's he to do with this? And finally, at the end, he realizes he realizes something. I want to show you this clip. So here. Clarence! Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! Get me back to my wife and kids! Help me, Clarence, please! Please! I want to live again! I want to live again! I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. <laughs> One of the nice things about God is uh, he hears prayers like that. Um, and that may be a conscious prayer of your own life, or it may be something from time to time you've cried out for, you want to live again. And the nice thing about God is there was a time you did not exist, and there will be a time when you won't exist on this earth. But well before you existed or I existed, uh, God sent the one who brought all things into being. Um, God, who the Gospel of John talks about this word that spoke and just brought all things that were created into life, into being, and this word becomes flesh. I want to read to you from the Gospel of John um, in the first chapter. Uh, starting at the 14th verse, I'm going to skip a verse and then go to the 18th verse. Listen. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. 
The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God's only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, um, we want to live too. I know we're at various stages in our hearts as we each pray such a prayer. We want to live. We want to have life. We, um, we, we want to be yours. And, and we know, Lord, that there might be some people in this room who are in a dark place, a despairing place, and, and we pray for them that they would want to live too. We thank you that you hear such prayers, that you hear desperate prayers. Uh, we thank you that you hear happy prayers as well. And we thank you that uh, you sent your son and that he came to make you known and to deliver to us grace upon grace. So speak to us. Open up um, ears that sometimes are just deaf to you. Open up eyes that sometimes just avoid your gaze. Um, open up hearts that sometimes can be so stiff, so hard, they just don't want to hear you. But we say, come Holy Spirit, meet us. Amen. In the 16th century, a fellow named Matteo Ricci was a, um, a Jesuit, a Jesuit uh, missionary to China. And one of the things he decided to do was to take kind of Christian art and to show it to the Chinese people as he describes the gospel. And he shows them the Virgin Mary uh, holding uh, Jesus, and they just really respond well to those images. And then he explains to them that the God-child becomes the God-man, and they shows them pictures of Jesus being crucified, to which the people of China act in, react in revulsion. They do not like this. And they want to worship Mary and the child, but they don't want to worship this crucified one at all. And, and that tends to be the way they are is the way we tend to be. We tend to want to make Jesus into our image. We tend to want to make God what we want God to be. There's a, a guy named uh, Stephen Prothero, and he, he, said, uh, he said these words in an interview. He said, Christians traditionally, as they have shaped Jesus, have been worried about getting it wrong. Oh, I like that. Traditionally. Including the Puritans. Americans today, not so worried. There isn't the same sense that this is a life and death matter, that you don't want to mess with divinity. There's a freedom and even a playfulness that Americans have. The flexibility of our Jesus exhibits, uh, exhibits is unprecedented. There's a Gumby-like quality to Jesus in the United States. Even turning Jesus into a friend among born-against Christians, that kind of chutzpah is something that was unknown to Americans in the colonial period. We have this desire to kind of remake God. It's just something. It's a part of what we do, right? And, and we have to be really careful, but one of the chief theological um, issues for all of us is who decides who God is? You? Me? Who decides that? And, and that's an important one for us. Uh, here's an example. Uh, feminists, reasonably, I'm a Christian feminist in case you wondered, but feminists reasonably are, are rather upset, um, some of them, about the idea of calling God Father, some of them. Um, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I understand the critique underneath that. I don't want to lose that. Had we listened to Jesus, because Jesus was ahead of the feminists, Jesus said, don't call any man father. Only, you have only one father, and his name is God. And he would actually, he didn't like titles much either. He wouldn't really be fascinated by the fact that I'm called a pastor. Don't call anyone rabbi. 
You know, just call them who they are. And imagine had we, and there's no way we're going to go back on this one, but imagine had we obeyed Jesus on not calling anyone Father, but one, God, feminists would not reasonably react to the patriarchy that can be embedded in that. The danger that's embedded in that, though, is what we do is we take human fathers and we imbue God with that. And what we need to understand is all human fathers are appropriately, horrifyingly at times, critiqued by the Father who is in heaven. And, and that's the trick for us, is how do we allow God to be who God is, to, to be God's self? And that's a matter of prayer. That's a matter of sitting and studying Jesus. Just wanting to know all that you can about Jesus, sitting at his feet and becoming fascinated by him. Just opening up your Bible, reading John again and going, so what's, what's God like? It is... It is the son who's close to the father's heart who has made the father known. Jesus will say more concretely in the Gospel of John, anyone who's seen me has seen the father. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. You just look at Jesus, you look at Jesus, you look at Jesus, and you go, oh my God, it's God. I mean, that's what happens as you look at Jesus. You know, you're just like, yes, this is what it is. And, and it critiques our own little stuff, right? Sometimes it's going to speak to us in some ways that we need to be critiqued and go, oh yeah, I guess I've done that with God. And I need to allow God to be who God is. Which from time to time would mean, by the way, I'm not offended that Americans call Jesus friends since Jesus actually uses a term like that for us. That's a fine term. The danger is when we turn Jesus just into our friend. He's just our buddy. Um, and the danger is we forget to get on our knees, assuming we can kneel. And, and to worship him and to be silent before him and to, to understand that we're in the presence of God Almighty when we're in the presence of God. And that's a rather important thing for us to go, oh my gosh, right? It's God. Here we are. And so when we come to sing, we're not merely making music. We're really trying to go, you know, praise you. We just honor you, how, how good and awesome you are that, that right now he's here. Isn't that wild? Jesus promised two, two or three people gathered in name. We've beaten that number, right? There I am in the midst of you. There I am. He's here right now. Jesus is here right now. He's aware of you. He's present to you. Wherever you are, he is aware of you. He loves you. It's a stunning thing. Uh, Jesus has, has done some very powerful things in uh, his life and death and resurrection, his ascension to the fathers, continued intercession for us as our great high priest. Um, some pretty amazing things for us. Um, in 1979, later uh, 1979, October, it was a Friday night. Um, I remember I was there. October 26th, um, my wife and I made vows to each other. We made vows to each other. Now, we wrote our own vows, and we will tell you with great honesty, we have no idea what those vows are. We can't find them. We honestly have no idea what it is. But this is what we agree on, and we do agree on this. We agree that the vows that we took are really these vows. Um, I, Tom, take you, Gail, to be my wife, uh, to have and to hold this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, according to God. And in the presence of God and God's people, I'm, that's the vow we made. Whether we actually said those words, we always know what, we knew what we were saying. Now, marriage is an important thing for us as, a, as an illustration here. Marriage is a covenant. At least that sort of marriage is a covenant. See, a covenant is when one person promises to love the other person unconditionally. That's a covenant. A covenant is not a contract. In the state of Arizona, we have something known as a covenant marriage, 
That actually is a legal thing, which is not the same thing as a covenant. It's just a way to make divorce harder. I'm not against covenant marriage. Just don't confuse that sort of thing with what a covenant is. A covenant is when I promise to love someone unconditionally, um, and my wife happened to do the same with me. That's known as a bilateral covenant. We each made promises to love each other unconditionally. And, and frankly, that's the only way we could make it through our marriage, is this is a promise we made, and we keep living into that promise, because marriage is hard. My wife can testify to that. It's hard being married to me. Um, it has been particularly challenging at times. And, and we joke that I've been married to at least seven gales. The second one, eh, you know, that, we, that I've been, she keeps morphing and changing, right? And, and we, this is how we joke with each other. But marriage is a covenant. Now, covenant doesn't just happen to happen in marriage. It can happen in friendships. In 1 Samuel, there's this friendship between David and Jonathan. And they, they just make this promise to love each other unconditionally. So you may have a friend that's just so tight to you that you cannot imagine not loving them to the end. But that's what a covenant is. A covenant is not a contract. A contract is like you're going to buy a home. So you sign things. You do these. You do these things. Okay, I'll, I'll write you a check or have someone else write the check, and I'll pay a bank for 30 years. Um, you know, the, the, that sort of thing's a contract. And we sometimes use the word covenant for what's actually contracts and sometimes use contracts for what are actually covenants. But a covenant's an important thing. So that's a bilateral covenant. Here's what God is doing in Jesus. He's making a unilateral contract, covenant. It's actually what he does in the, the Bible. With Abraham, he makes a unilateral covenant. He says, hey, I will be your God. I will bless you. I will give you lots of descendants. I'll make your name great. I will be your God. I'll curse the one who curses you. I'll bless the ones who blesses you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a unilateral there, there isn't some sort of promise that Abraham makes. Abraham just goes, amen, right? I mean, that's the right response to a covenant like that. Yeah, right? In Exodus, God does the same thing with the people of Israel. He rescues them from the house of bondage. They're being oppressed, they're enslaved, and he rescues them. And we often think of the Ten Commandments as coming first. They're not what come first. What comes first is that God rescues these people, frees these people, does this momentous thing of splitting the waters open, and makes them as people, and in the beginning of the Ten Commandments, it says, I am your God. I rescued you from bondage. That's a unilateral covenant. Okay, so now I'm going I'm to throw at you some grammatical terms. Forgive me. I know none of us like grammar. But here's some grammatical terms. Good, <laughs> good. And your name is? Hey, Mackenzie, nice to meet you. Friends, okay. So um, I do too. Um, the indicatives. Indicatives are kind of like a state. This is what reality is. The indicatives. And then there are imperatives. Hey, this is what you need to do. Go do this. In Christian theology, in God's covenant, indicatives always precede imperatives. Here's the reality. God has loved you through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, his, uh, his presence now before the Father, interceding for us all. He has made a unilateral covenant with you. That's, the, that's reality. It exists whether you like it, whether you're running from it, whether you're angry with God, whether you're happy with God, it is reality. There is nothing you can do to get God to love you. Why? Because before you existed, God showed his love for you and continues to do so. That's the indicative. Then imperatives come. Hey, part of being a part of this unilateral covenant, here's the way to respond. It, it, that should only be logical, right? To be in a bilateral covenant with my wife, it's logical that there's an indicative, a reality of our marriage, and the imperatives are that we love each other from that time forward. It's just something we do. The indicatives is you are loved. 
That's reality. Whether you like it, whether you accept it, whether it just thrills you to death, that's reality. And here's the strange thing about um, Americans, in particular Westerners, I think, but maybe all people. We love to reverse it. We like to turn imperatives first and indicative second. We want to say, well, God, I don't think really God loves me because you know, I've just done these things. And, and, and what happens is we, we go, I, I've blown these imperatives, so therefore God doesn't love me. And that's, that's a crucial theological mistake. And functionally, it's a bit of a pride thing going on. It's kind of our way of controlling the transaction. We, we believe it. We see it as a transaction with God. And it becomes our way of controlling it. Well, God can't love me because I'm just a really terrible person. I've, I've actually had people say to me, Tom, if you knew me, if you really knew me, you would, you would not be saying this to me. And I'd say, you know, you're beginning to understand the gospel. <laughs> you're beginning to understand the gospel. That's right. You do not qualify. Neither do I. And it's not about qualifying. The indicatives precede the imperatives. Here's the indicative. You are loved beyond your wildest dreams. You were loved before you came into being. You are loved now, and you will be loved when you're resting in the bosom of Jesus. You are loved. It doesn't change. It's just the reality of you. And, and the more you can begin to enter into that love, you will change. There's a word called compunction, another fancy word for you, in the Christian tradition, might not have this modern-day meaning, but in the Christian tradition, compunction is when you realize, ooh, I screwed up. And you immediately run to God, you say you're sorry, and you don't beat the crap out of yourself. You just understand, ah, I'm a sinner, I do these things, but I don't want to do them, I'm sorry, Lord. And, and healthy Christians are people who have the gift of compunction. They, they don't take like two weeks to come back and tell God they're sorry. They're fast to say they're sorry. They're fast to turn. And they understand they don't beat the crap out of themselves because they understand the indicative reality that they are loved by God. And they go, you know, and this happens to me sometimes, most every day. You know, something will happen inside me. You might not hear it, but, but I'll say to the Lord, well, we both heard that, didn't we? And I'm sorry about it for that. And then you just move on, right? I mean, my mouth may be very clean, but you may not hear everything that goes on there, right? There, so, and sometimes maybe things come out of my mouth that shouldn't come out of my mouth. And God is kind, but the practice for us is compunction. To live in the indicative reality that you are loved. How do we know that? Because Jesus delivers us something. It's called grace. He doesn't just deliver us grace. He delivers grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's inexhaustible. Grace is inexhaustible. I need grace. I, I couldn't be married without grace. I, I couldn't. I need God's forgiveness. I, I need grace. I, I couldn't be a father without grace. I, I, first, I'm just starting with God, but then I obviously need it from other people as well. I, I need grace. I need forgiveness. I, I screw up. Uh, but, but here's an important reality. We don't want to reduce grace to merely forgiveness. A tremendous thing. Grace is inclusive of forgiveness, but much bigger. I read a, um, an essay yesterday called A Spiritual Autobiography by a woman named Candace Vogler. She is a professor at the University of Chicago in philosophy. And after reading the essay, I'm just stunned that she is a professor at the University of Chicago. It's an amazing story. Um, if, if you don't know the University of Chicago, it's very esteemed. Um, people who go to the University of Chicago will say, uh, University of Chicago is where fun goes to die. 
Um, it's where people, people really go and they just ah, study really, really hard. So, but Candace Vogler uh, tells this story about her life. Her father was a Presbyterian minister for a while and then became a teacher and um, abused her horribly. And she, she it's, a, it's a hard uh, essay to read. She's amazing as she describes her life just as a little girl. Her, her father only becomes careful as she's approaching puberty to give you a sense of how vulgar this man was. And, and she has a nervous break at some point, just trying to deal with all of her life. She just has this breakdown. And, and she says this after the breakdown. Jesus held me. He loved me. He loved my father. He loved my increasingly distracted and chaotic mother. He loved my sisters and brother whose care, care fell to me much of the time. He knew as well as I did that men are dangerous. And I thought a lot about the depth of the sense in which he came to teach and to heal. He taught us that the ones who are most in need of teaching and healing are the ones who are suffering the most and the most in need of help. And I realized that in Jesus, we have an actual model of human masculinity that is not toxic to itself and to everyone else. We have a model of a man who humbles himself so that he can come to us from love. A man who sacrifices himself from love for everyone. What I was afraid of, she's speaking after the breakdown, what I was most of the time following the few years after this break was afraid. I was afraid to look in any reflecting surfaces. I was afraid to walk to the end of the driveway to take out the trash. I was afraid to be alone. I was afraid of other children in the school. I was afraid of the other children in the neighborhood. I feared an evil thing had attached itself to me and could injure anyone who got close to me. And still I prayed and prayed. I got over the paralyzing fear by forcing myself to do things that seemed to be impossibly dangerous, reciting psalms in my head and whispering the Lord's Prayer all the while. Bit by bit, over the course of a few years, I overcame the terror. And although I had very little contact with people outside my immediate family, I realized that all of this was abnormal and strongly suspected I was not a sane person. Jesus still loved me. I was very scared of myself and for my brother and sisters because they had to rely on me a lot and children should not have to rely on a crazy person to get them safely to and from school and to feed them. But Jesus was not afraid of me. And I was not afraid of him. And in the story, she talks about her pilgrimage of kind of going through various things and ending up um, very much a Christian. Grace is certainly a wonderful thing that God offers us for people who have screwed up. But grace is also offered to people who are broken through no fault of their own. Grace uh, that Jesus offers is to people who, who are a mess, and, but we don't look at them and go, well, you're the reason. You're, no, my gosh, you're a mess. I'm so, so, oh, my gosh, what happened to you? Jesus offers grace to all broken people. If you ever want contact with God, just be humble before God. Doors open. If you want to be with people who are broken, loved them and ask God to give you grace to be with them. Grace is certainly for forgiveness. Grace is certainly for the broken. Grace is for living. <clears throat> if you've ever seen really good people, really wonderful Christian people, and you go, oh my God, they're really good people, and I guess they've just learned to be good, Dallas Willard will tell you, no, they're burning grace like jet fuel. When you see really good people, they're people who are reliant on the grace of God. It's just, they just know that they know, and they're just constantly crying out, help me, 
Help me, Jesus. Help me. Oh, Jesus, help me. You may not hear it audibly, but God hears such things. Grace is inexhaustible. Um, I, how many of you have been to Lake Tahoe? Well, okay, some of you. All right, some of you. Um, on July 4th, 1875, two guys decided to find the lowest part of Lake Tahoe. They used a weighted champagne bottle. I have no idea why. But they used a weighted champagne bottle, used fishing line, used fishing line, and they measured it at 1,675 feet. That was the lowest part of Lake Tahoe. And when sonar came about, sonar actually validated their measurement. Fascinating. Lake Tahoe, Lake Tahoe, if we dumped it on the state of California, California would be covered with 14 and a half inches of water. Lake Tahoe, if we wanted to like use it as our water supply, it, Americans, it would apply 50 gallons a day for five years. That's how much, how much it is. So your use and need of water, you could never exhaust Lake Tahoe. And Lake Tahoe is the eighth largest lake in the world. Lake Superior is like 12 times bigger than it, and then the Caspian Sea is like 565 times. God's grace is greater than Lake Tahoe or the Caspian Sea. God's grace is inexhaustible to you, and thank God to me as well. It's inexhaustible, but it means we need to live in indicatives, the realities, the simple reality that I am loved. It means we need to hang out with Jesus and just stay present to him and go, you love me, and you love all these people around me. It's an astounding thing that God is this way. But it is who he is. And it's astounding to think that you are loved so crazily, so wondrously, so wildly. That Jesus loves you, and you can't avoid it. Whether you're running from it, whether you hate Jesus right now, whether you love him, you cannot avoid Jesus' love. You are deeply loved by Jesus. And you may need grace because your life might be a mess right now. You may be dealing with wounds and pains and sores from people that Candace Vogler would deal with. You may need grace because, yeah, you know you're a messy sinner like the rest of us. And you may need all that forgiveness. And people, some people get a little afraid when we talk about God's grace being so big. Yeah, but won't that... Won't people just do whatever they want once they hear that? I don't think that's the nature of it. I and mean, certainly that's possible. But when I pledged myself to my wife, my, my thinking has not been, what can I do to like, take advantage of that? I mean, I've screwed up for sure. I've, I've been messy. I've not been a perfect husband. But there's still grace in that. And if we exercise this gift of compunction where we, we just immediately run to God and go, and then we... Don't, we don't have this pride of like beating the crap out of ourselves because that's us taking the place of God. We just receive it. We go, wow. And then we, we say, give me grace. Help me. Let me move forward. I, I really want to move forward. All of this is not something to be kept. All of this is something to be shared. And we ask God to give us grace that when we're with people, we can't keep it to ourselves. We just find ourselves going, oh my gosh, I'm in the presence of someone who's so beloved by God. I'm in the presence of someone Jesus died for. Oh, how beautiful this is that I'm with you. How wonderful. 
Even we would look at our enemies that way. We would go, Jesus loves them. Doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care, God doesn't care um, about that which has been violated and those who violate, but Jesus still loves even violators. He does. He loves them. And that changes the way we interact with people, that we see people as beloved of God. Doesn't mean we don't hold people to account. Candace's father was held to account. He ended up in a state asylum in Washington State for the rest of his life. Those people should be held to account. But Candace understands that even her father was loved. God's grace is inexhaustible. It's inexhaustible. It's inexhaustible. Your brain is not smart enough, imaginative, creative enough. This is who God is. Crazy, isn't it? Isn't that crazy? God's not like me. God's not like you. God's like God. Thank God. Would you pray with me?